So we're going into 1 John. 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God has loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And we'll stop there for the moment. As I've been looking at this passage and reading this passage, for me, there's one question that I keep asking it, and it seems to answer that specific question. And it's a question that philosophers over many centuries have asked. It's a question that today, I think, in our hearts, we ask the same question. It's a question the media asks as well. In fact, the question has been specifically asked in the context of a popular music song. Now, obviously, the baby don't hurt me bit is not, not a part of the question. It's the bit, what is love? That is the big question. What is love? Now, before we get into anything else, a little pop quiz. Anyone name the artist? Very good. Year? 99. I know. It's quite modern. The, the point is this. It's a key question. It really is a key question. And we can answer that question in so many different ways. We can go to different sources to ask that question. But unless we come to the word of God, we're not going to get the true answer. Unless we specifically and purposely come to the word of God for any question in life, we won't get God's answer. And if we're not coming to the word of God, we'll get answers from other places. It naturally will infiltrate into us because we're exposed to information. We're exposed to concepts and ideas all the time. Unless we're purposely and specifically and intentionally coming to God to ask the key questions of life, we will not find out the right answers. So we can come and life gets infiltrated and information gets in through various different things like quality magazine publications like this. These sort of things will tell us the answer to what love is. Love is getting into multiple relationships by the looks of this front cover. Or maybe it's something a bit more classic. I'm going to have to cover up the front of that. It's not greatest. These magazines tell us what it is. This tells us it's all about physical love, if I can use a euphemism. That's what it's about. And making sure we get what we want from a relationship. If we don't come to the word of God, these things will tell us what love is. Or maybe, this is why this was here. Maybe love is this. Maybe it's love that crosses the class divide. That's really what love is. And that love is an enigmatic, moody, white-shirted, pond-dipping man. That's what love really is. Or for the younger watchers, maybe love is not just crossing the class divide, it's crossing the creature divide. That is not love. The serious point is here, we must come to the word of God to answer this question. 
And John answers it in a variety of different ways in this passage here. And the first answer he gives actually is rather a surprising answer. Rather than demonstrating or showing what love is, this is what he says in 1 John 4, 8. Just right at the end, the last three words of that verse, God is love. Three little words. If we really want to know what love is, we must not primarily look even necessarily at what God has done, although we will do that later. John draws us first to God himself. You see, God defines what love is through his very person. God invented love because he is love. God sets the boundaries of what love is. He describes what it is and what it isn't. It's in his hand. It's his gift. It's what he says love is. And this is what the word of God says. God is love. One of the problems I think we face in our lives is that we look at our lives and sometimes we say, we probably won't actually make it into words in our mouths, but just in the whispers of our minds, we just think that perhaps God isn't being as loving to us as we want him to be. And I can understand that to a certain extent. I can get hold of that to a certain extent. Let me just draw a parallel. Let's just pop off to a little different track for a second and talk about justice and talk about Job. Most of us here will know the story of Job, a man, a righteous man who believed God, blessed in many ways. Satan comes to God and says, he only worships you because he's got a great life. So God says, that's not true. Satan is given permission to remove those blessings from his life. And in it all, Job is suffering Job is going through hardship, through losing all his wealth, losing all his servants, losing daughters and sons, losing his health. But he does not curse God and he does not sin. But what he asks and what he says to God is something like this. God, how is this just? I'm I'm, I'm a righteous man. I've treated the poor well. I've kept your commandments. I'm a righteous man. And yet my life is like this. I want a hearing in your courtroom. I want to show you that actually this isn't just. And then there's the rather frightening bit. But glorious bit. Where God comes and speaks to Job. So let's, let's turn to that passage in Job 40. God comes to speak to Job. To address his grievances around his, his injustice, his perceived injustice. The Lord said to Job, this is verse 1, The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy 
How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, and I will say no more. One word from God without even addressing this issue of justice. And Job realizes his perspective and his attitude was wrong. It may not have been sinful, but it was wrong. He'd come to God with his definition of what justice was. He'd come to God saying, this is what it's all about. And sometimes we come to God and say, this is what love is. I have my nice little tidy box of what the definition of love is. And you're not fulfilling that for me. You're not being that for me. You're not, God, you don't get it. This is what love is. And John comes against that completely by saying not love is this necessarily, although we'll come to that. He says, God is love. If we want to be those who really understand the love of God, we must understand that God is love. If we want to know what it is to be loved and to love, we must come to God and say, he is love. He defines love. He's the epitome, the very personification of love. He is love. God is love. I just want to... Underline this point even more. This is still the same point, but I feel it's a really important point. Let's turn to John 17. John 17, written by the same author. John. This is Jesus's, they call it the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus praying for his disciples, those, those with him and those to be his disciples in the future. But some interesting comments he makes. From verse 24, we'll read a couple of verses. John 17, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. You love me before the creation of the world. This kind of hints at the essential character of God. We have already looked at today in our songs, God's holiness, his awesomeness, his wonder, his majesty, his perfection. And God is that. That's essentially what God is. But before God created and therefore was a creator, before he was reigning over his creation, before he was providing for us all these names that we know of God to be true, he wasn't doing those necessarily before creation. So what was he doing before creation? I suggest this verse here hints that he was love. The father was loving the son. And so in that very small verse, we get a hint at what life is like in the Trinity. It's perfect love. Perfect love of a holy God. We just have a slide up, if that's right, the first slide, Steve. John goes on, and we'll come to that in a second, goes on to talk, this is love, and talks about what love is. Um, behind me is a picture. Does anyone know who that is? Yeah, it's from my back garden. <laughs> that's the view from our kitchen window. I see that probably 
10 times a day, maybe 15. And not many times has it grabbed my attention. It's very familiar. It's quite a beautiful view, isn't it? I'm aware, as we come to look at what God has done for us, how God has loved us, is that we can be so familiar with it, we can have walked past it so many times, we can be seen it 15, 20 times a day, that it actually doesn't impact us anymore. We don't notice the beauty in it. And so I show this just to say, let's open our hearts afresh to the God of love, who was loving before creation. And his love has overflowed into creation. And his love has been demonstrated, as we'll see, at the cross. But as we come to this wonderful demonstration of love, let's not be too familiar with it. Let's allow our hearts, once again, to be softened to what God really has done for us. Thanks, Steve. Let's go to 1 John. Back into there again, please. 1 John 4. We're going to spend the rest of the time looking at verse 10, where John says, this is love. Now, he said it previously, but we don't have time to cover all of that in today's message. So we're going to look at verse 10 for the remainder of our time. And it says this, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love, not that we loved him. This is a negative definition of what love is. Now, interestingly, if this is love, not that we love God. Those are two exactly the same words, different tenses. So us loving God is us loving God, and it is love, but... It's so much not like God's love that it's not love. It's not like it's a different word in the Greek. And so, you know, this is love. God's love is amazing and our love's not quite as good. It's exactly the same word. But it provides for us a foil, something to hold against God's love to show how amazing it is. It's a negative definition. And we observe what God's love is by observing what it's not. You see, true love is not us loving God. Us loving God makes absolute sense. He's love and he is lovable. How many Sheffield Wednesday supporters do we have in the building this morning? Thomas Smith, Tina, very excited Sheffield Wednesday supporter. Got a hand wave. Julie, less convinced and less committed to that supporting. Okay, so as a mediocre, small percentage support for the Alps. Blades. Oh, William, very, yeah, you keep your hand up because you're really, really, blades. Okay, you were a bit cautious then, weren't you? You weren't too sure whether you should commit to that. It's okay. You can be a Sheffield United supporter. That's fine. So it's about the same, same principle. Right. So I can only deduce that the rest of you who enjoy football and are not from, um, are from Sheffield, that you in fact are what we called at school glory supporters. In other words, like Chris Chart, Instead of choosing a football club close to home and being loyal, you looked across all the football clubs that were operating at that time and you pinned your hopes on the one that was best in 1942. (laughs) 
It's a bit harsh, wasn't it? 1945. Well, he weren't playing then. It was the middle of the war. Um, and he, he lumped for Liverpool. Now, it's not gone so well in recent years, but at that point in time, I would still call Chris a glory supporter. I think, I think it's fair, and that's fine. When we love God, we're being glory supporters. He's glorious. He's wonderful. Of course we're going to love him. But God loves us. It's like being absolutely and ardently committed to supporting Northampton Town, who are bottom of League Two and have hardly won a game all season. That's love. That's true support. Not Liverpool, who've got more money than sense. That's how God loves us. He sees the Torquay Uniteds, the Northampton Towns, and says, I'm going to support you. I'm going to give you my affection. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to give you my love. It's not love if we love God. This is love, that God loves us. You see, there's nothing in us that actually deserves God's affection. It's not like God looked down and and saw my forearms and said, Benjamin, your forearms are excellent. I wish to put my love upon you. Due to the nature of your forearms, there's nothing in us, there's nothing of us that should naturally draw the affection of God. We are, my friends, together, Northampton Town. But we are together, my friends, loved. This is love. Not that he loved us. Not that not we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice. There are sometimes we read the Bible and we just skip on quickly to the bits that are drawing our attention. So in that sentence, have you, we've, we've looked at not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice. The word and there just really stuck out to me. I know it did to you too. We were drawn straight into that fabulous word, a little connective in the middle there. For me, we can say God has loved us because he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Yeah? And we'll look at that, legitimate. But it says he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. So sometimes... We want to get hold of God's love. We want to understand it. And we go, we'll look at the cross. And that's totally true. God loved us before the cross. It's an obvious statement when you think about it. But we need to get hold of that. It's not that his love was suddenly effective at the cross. Actually, his love was in effect before so that the cross might happen. You see, he loved us. Pre-time, pre-eternity. Ephesians says this, He chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. In other words, be those who could be in relationship with Him. Just get your head around this for a moment. Before the creation of the world, God loved you. It's difficult to get our heads around, isn't it? Let me try and demonstrate a little bit of how it might happen. I just need my youngest daughter for a second, if that's all right. Can we reach over? Hello. You're right. There we go. I didn't check with Elsie whether this is all right beforehand. I hope it is. Is that okay? Is it all right? This is Elsie. If you don't know Elsie, don't be distracted by the cuteness. Focus on the words. 
Before she was born, I think I loved her. I'm pretty sure I did. Before she was born, I loved her. Because she was going to be my daughter. And she is. That's the closest illustration I can get for us to understand how God has loved us. He had planned in eternity past for you and I, if we know Jesus, to be his child. And therefore he loved us before he saved us. He loved us before we knew him, before we even knew God existed. He loved us even before we were a twinkle in our mummy or daddy's eye. Don't ask me to explain it. It's not really there for us to get an explanation and understand it. It's in the scripture for us to go, wow. He chose me before the creation of the world. He loved me before I was born. This is the God of love that we know and worship. Well done for not focusing on the cuteness. Here we go. Child not drops success. So the affection I have for Elsie before she was born was fairly significant. Just imagine the affection that the Father has for us. Just imagine how big it is. You see, we often think of God's love for us as a reaction that occurs when we come to meet with him. Suddenly, you know, we come in, into a place where we know or understand something of God. And at that point in time, God chooses to love us. There's suddenly, oh, yes, I can, and in the cross, I can now love you. But as we've looked at, God is love. God in the Trinity was loving before the world began. And that love has overflowed into his creation. So his countenance, his disposition, his direction, his preference, his propensity towards us is to love us. That's what he wants to do. Anyone got this book? If you haven't got this book, may I suggest you buy this book and find a time when your mind is alert and when your mind is ready and read it and understand it and get your Bible out, chew it over. This, the premise of the book is, as the title suggests, to demonstrate that the God we know and worship is a good God. And the primary way that the author Michael Rees demonstrates that is by showing how wonderful and glorious the Trinity is and how amazing the Trinity is and how everything else flows out of the character of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. He says this, Love is not a mere reaction with this God. In fact, it's not a reaction at all. God's love is creative. Love comes first. He gives life and being as a free gift. For his very life, being and goodness is yeasty, spreading out that there might be more that is truly good. Now, he's focusing on the goodness of God in there, but we can apply the same principle to God's love. God is love, and he is wanting 
to demonstrate and show and us to know that love. But that occurred before the cross. He loved us before his son was sent as an atoning sacrifice. Messes with our mind because we're in a kind of time linear thing. And that's how we understand it. But the Bible tells us he loved us before the creation of the world. He chose us before the creation of the world. He has set his lovers upon us before his son was sent as an atoning sacrifice. Chris, Chris, hi Chris, how are you doing? Chris, Tina, shared about how the goodness of God and tasting and seeing that God is good. I feel that really is a point God wants to underline. I don't know what your focus or view of God is, how you see him. He is, he is absolutely holy and perfect. And he is jealous for his glory and that all men may recognize who he is. But he is good and he is love. And he longs that all might be saved and none might be lost. And that includes you. God wants to know you. God wants to love you. He is a good God and he wants his love to come to you this morning. Back to the text again. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This statement points back to the Old Testament system of blood sacrifices where a lamb would need to be killed in order that temporary forgiveness of sin would be achieved, that the Israelites, the chosen people of God, could relate to a holy God. And the thing with a sacrifice, as the very word implies, there's a sacrifice involved. We're in familiar territory, but let's stir our hearts afresh here. God sent his one and only precious, beloved, perfect, righteous, almighty son to die, to be an atoning sacrifices for our sins. God is love, but he did not have to do that. He did not have to send his son. But he did. I can't get my head around giving up one of my children. I've got three. He sent his one and only son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The cost was significant. As we heard Tom interpret, the cost. He did it to win us. For a moment, I just want us to really get hold of what it means for Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice. Because if we do that, we get an idea of how much love has been shown for us. And primarily, the way we're going to do that is by looking how far short we've fallen from God's standards. Romans 3.23 says this, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Unfortunately for you and me, the word all is fairly all-encompassing. 
which means that if you're sitting on a seat in this room, or indeed alive or dead, you're accounted within that category of all. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's standards. We can't be perfect like he is perfect. And as a holy God, a totally righteous and perfect God, he can't have anything to do with sinful people. Now we kind of get this as those, if you've been around here long enough, we get that. We understand that. But do we really understand that? Do we really get hold of it? You see, let's imagine for a moment this right here is the throne room of God. And God is sitting on his throne in absolute power, might, and perfection. Whereabouts in the room do you think you should be sitting? Whereabouts do you think, do you, do you, are you someone who thinks, yeah, oh, oh, I don't know, actually, I'm looking around, I'm thinking, because we, we all compare, don't we? We, don't, we all look at each other and go, actually, yeah, I'm not as holy as God, clearly I'm not holy as God, but just about, yeah, I'm not quite as holy as him, but I'm definitely holier than him. So, so this is me. In my, in my relative holiness, I'm about here. Or maybe, you, you know, maybe you're someone and go, actually, I'm pretty fine. I'm pretty good. I'm going to get fairly close. Obviously, I'm not perfect, so I'm going I'm to go, you know, I can't get right into the throne room of God, but I am pretty close. Or maybe... Maybe you're someone who's actually just so aware of your sin, and you're someone who, who actually is way back here. You're, you, you think, I'm a back row person, I'm a back row sinner, I'm so bad, I'm awful, I'm right back here. The problem is, is that we're not even in the room when it comes to... I'm going out the room. We're not even in the room. We're not even in the building we're not even on the same planet when it comes to God's holiness. It's a completely different situation. We relativize, we compare ourselves to each other. We look at each other and say, yeah, I'm all right, I'm doing okay. But we need to compare ourselves to a holy God who has never ever even considered the prospect of doing something wrong. And yet, we get to know him. We get to know him. I'm going to do an illustration because I really want to ram this home. Um, je me présente le nappy de tea. It's a dirty nappy. It's all right. It's not soiled in that sense. Um, the Bible says our works, our efforts are filthy rags. Actually, we think filthy rags can have some use. I can clean down some dirty stuff. And nappy, what use is that? Absolutely nothing. When it comes to winning relationship with God or impressing God, everything we do is actually more like a nappy that has been used. It's, a, it's just got to throw it away. It's, it's not going to do anything for us. I have no idea what to do with this now. I'll leave it for Dave. <laughs> Careful where you tread. What am I trying to say? The gap between us and a holy God as sinners is absolutely unbridgeable. We cannot get across it. Our efforts are no use. It's a waste of time trying to impress God. You will not do it. We will get nowhere. It's not going to happen. And there have been moments, I can think of two precise moments in my life when God, in his mercy and grace, has revealed the huge 
huge gap. He's revealed to me the nature, some part of the nature of my sin, the weight of it. One of those times when I came first to realize I needed a savior. I was 11 years old and it was a good hellfire and damnation preach and it worked like a dream. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed a savior and God met with me. He showed me the depth of my sin, but he showed me a savior. Seven years later, eight years later, I was leading worship in the same church back in Coventry. And I've been spending time studying and reading about the holiness of God. And God, in his wisdom and his mercy, decided as I was leading worship that he would very graciously dump upon me the weight of my sin for a moment. I fell into the floor in a heap of tears, surrounded by the most puzzled faces I've ever known in my life. It wasn't like I said, by the way, God's about to bring upon me some repentance. It was just God came. It was mid-song. It was just horrendous. It was like a car crash of a meeting. I mean, personally, very helpful. But for everyone else, that's... So, but anyway, the point I'm making is this, is that God's grace is revealed more when we know the depth of our sin. When we know how much we really have done wrong. When we realize the huge gap between us and God. Just going to stick another slide up. This is a quote from Tim Keller, which um, I just, I think is quite helpful. It says, you are more sinful than you could dare imagine. And you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. The two come together, I think, actually. The more we understand how far we've fallen short of God's glory, the more we understand how much God has really loved us, how much he really, really does love us. Thanks, Steve. And so what what has he done? This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus has atoned for us. Jesus has made up for us. At the cross, we see the wrath of a holy God which should have been dispensed and put upon each and every one of us, instead poured out on a perfect, righteous man. Fully God, fully man. He put aside and took upon himself every single ounce of punishment and wrath that we deserved. And so instead of us, as those who believe, careering towards an eternity without God, we stand as those righteous before a holy God. Jesus 
has atoned and made up for our errors. He's bridged that gap. Instead of us, instead of, instead of us having to wallow in our sinfulness forever away from God, instead the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon us in order that we might live in wonderful eternal relationship with the Holy God, knowing His love poured out into our hearts and into our lives every day and for eternity. That's what love is. That's what God has done. God is love. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Let's just open um, Romans for a second. Romans 5, we're going to go to. I just want to read one very simple verse. Romans 5, verse 5, the back end of verse 5. And just note what tense this in. Little English lesson. It's in past tense. So if you believe in Jesus, if you have entrusted your life to him, if you've said, I can't do this. I can't be all that God needs me to be. I need Jesus to be my savior. If Jesus has won you, if he's gotten hold of your heart, then this is true for you. It says this. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Do you believe God? Or do you think he's a little bit like I am? Yesterday evening, my girls were in the bath. I put my T-shirt on my head and my flat cap on top of my T-shirt. I stomped down the corridor and made groaning noises, pretending to be a monster. Jules played along and instructed the girls there was a monster coming. There was a playful scream and the girls said, oh, it's just daddy, pretending to be a monster. Is God just pretending to be loving? Is it just a pretense? Something he likes to do on a Sunday Maybe a Wednesday as well? Or do you believe what the Word of God says? Are you trusting DVDs? Are you going to them and letting them tell you what love really is? Are you going to magazines? Are you going to TV? What are you believing when it comes to defining what true love is? God has. God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God has shown his love on the cross. God really is love and he really does want you to know his love. In future times, we'll look at the later bits in 1 John 4 where it talks about love one another. But 
we need to make sure that before we start doing loving acts, that we really do know God's love. It really has resounded with us. We really do know it. The temptation is, well, Paul prays this in Ephesians. He says something like, I want you to know the unknowable love of God. Uh I want you to know this love that, that you can't know. What he's saying is this, is that we can't really get our head around the magnificence and the wonder of God's love for us. And I realized this morning that I, I've, I've tried in some way to convey the nature of God's love, but it's nothing like God's love, is it? I've merely given you some information, some truth. But Paul prays, I want you to know. I want you to know this love. How do we know this love? We come to know the God of love. We don't press into information, though truth and information can help us. We press in to a God of love. And you and I need to know that the God of love has his arms open for us this morning, wanting to embrace us. In our sinfulness through Jesus, that is possible. We can know God's love. So, let me finish by asking another question. Or rather, perhaps it should be an exhortation. Let's live in God's love. Let that be something we know, both truth-wise, but experientially as well. Get to know and walk with God. When Terry Virgo was with us, um, we had a leaders meeting with him in the evening, and it was a Q&A session. And I asked him a question which, through which I was trying to ascertain how he balanced um, his walk with God, leading loads and loads of churches and uh, looking after his family and his wife. And I was trying to get to, you know, I wanted some technique or some method or something that, you know, some little, some little key that unlock it. So I got, oh, yeah, that's, that's how I should do it. And he kind of didn't answer the question in some senses. He, he said this. He said a lot more than this, but he essentially says, he said, dwell in love, which is a quote from 1 John 3, I think. Live in love is the NIV translation. Okay. It must be wise because Terry Virgo said it, but I didn't, at the time, I didn't quite get it. But, but now, through God's grace and through the journey I've been through, I, can't, I get it a bit more. And my, my personal testimony is this. As I've come to understand more of God's love and given myself to understand it and tasted it and had the spirit poured out in my heart so that I might know it even more, it's transformed my relationship with God. Yes, there are difficult times and yes, it's hard work to pray sometimes, but actually it's gone to a, to a different place because I got hold of this fact. fact God is love. God has atoned for my sin as an act of love, not so that he could then watch from a distance and see if I flounder through life, but so that he might be intimately involved with mine and your life. God loves us. God wants to be in relationship with us. God wants us to know his love. I'm just going to finish by reading that verse again because I think it's just... So wonderful. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins.